At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Before we start this week, I just wanted to say thank you to all the listeners who wrote us really nice reviews on Apple Podcasts. Here's just a few of them. Zena writes, quote, Thursday is one of my favorites. I'm off work, get to hang out with my husband in the morning while eating breakfast and listening to Stay Tuned. Close quote. Richmond Russ says, quote, Every morning I indoor row for an hour. Wow, that's great. Good for you. And listen to various podcasts. My favorite is Preet on Thursday mornings. Close quote. And Dylan writes, this may be my favorite, quote, Preet is a very stable genius. Close quote. So Dylan, Richmond, Zena, thank you. We want to send you a T-shirt, but we need to know where to send them. So if you would, send us a note with your address to staytunedatcafe.com. For everybody else, let us know where you listen to the show in an Apple Podcast review. Every five-star review helps more people discover the program. All right, now time for the show. From Cafe and WNYC Studios... Welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Before I started working at the ACLU, we had 400,000 members. Today, we have 1.75 million members. That's a tremendous source of power, and I think a tremendous source of hope. That's David Cole. He's the legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union. When Donald Trump was elected president, the ACLU famously tweeted, We'll see you in court. And they have. Since Election Day, David Cole has been pretty busy. We're going to talk about some of the cases his organization is taking on right now, which include the travel ban and lots of issues related to privacy. But first, let's get to your questions. Hey, Preet. This is Valerie Rhodes, and I'm calling from Laguna Niguel, California. And my question is about all the discussion around proper security clearances in the White House. And my question is, for those folks who don't have the proper clearances, are they still being allowed to access and handle uh, classified information? And if they are improperly handling classified information without the appropriate clearances, are there some consequences either for them or the folks around them that are allowing them to handle this classified information? Uh, Appreciate if you could shed some light on that. Thanks so much for your podcast. Listen to each and every one of them and look forward to hearing them. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, Valerie. That's a great set of questions. And in fact, my answer to your question is that some of the things we're hearing about with respect to security clearances in the White House raise a lot more questions than are being answered at the moment. As an initial matter, security clearance is no joke. It's a big deal. It takes a long time. At various points in my career, both when I was an assistant U.S. attorney, then I worked in the Senate, and then obviously as United States attorney, I had to go through the security clearance process. Everyone in my office had to go through some process. There are higher and higher levels of of clearance that you need depending on the sensitivity of the information. 
But obviously, given the kinds of materials that the leader of the free world and commander-in-chief needs to have access to, and not only him, but also you know, principal advisors to him have to be able to have access to, we're talking about the highest level of security clearance. So the first thing I'll say is it's very disturbing that after this length of time, you know, well over a year in office, there are very significant people in the White House who don't have security clearance. One of those people who's been in the news a lot is Rob Porter. I don't know how much people appreciate about the significance of the job Rob Porter had. Staff, secretary, it sounds like a low-level position, but it is actually the point person in the White House who is supposed to be responsible for all of the paper flow that reaches the desk of the president. That's an incredibly important, sensitive position, uh, especially when you're talking about classified information. So the fact that not only did he not have full clearance, but it appears from the testimony of the FBI director in the past week that he was never going to get full clearance. Look, one consequence of not being in a position to obtain your final security clearance, even after the, you know, the background investigation has been completed, is you should lose your job. And that happened for different reasons with respect to Rob Porter, but maybe it should happen with respect to other people as well. Getting to the, getting to the other part of your question about whether or not there should be a consequence for people who are looking at material that's beyond their security clearance, I think there absolutely should be. You know, the point of security clearance and the point of having varying levels of security clearance you know, are very clear. The point is that you're not supposed to be able to access things that are beyond what you know, professional people have decided is safe to entrust you with. And so if it is the case that Rob Porter or others not having a higher level of security clearance are looking at things they shouldn't be, they should be fired, and there should be an investigation. The good news is that there seems to be some effort to get to the bottom of this. Trey Gowdy, who's on the House Oversight Committee, who has decided not to run for re-election, and maybe that explains some of this, has just today sent a letter to the White House Chief of Staff asking a series of questions about security clearances, what people were aware of with respect to Rob Porter, and I think a whole host of other things. I looked at the letter I would have had uh, more questions, more specific questions, more subparts, but that's just me being a stickler. But hopefully that will shed some light on, on these matters too, beyond what I can. You know, we had a lot of questions this week about security clearances. Um, can't imagine why. Here's another one from Twitter user uh, Smarty Pants, spelled with two Zs. I like that. Uh, question for your podcast. Do presidents themselves undergo a security clearance? And if not, do you think that Donald Trump would himself pass a security clearance? Well, the answer to that question is no. The president is the person elected by the citizens of the country, and he walks into the Oval Office uh, having clearance and needing that clearance so he can actually be commander-in-chief and protect the homeland. And some people may not like that, and there's talk of having some hurdle that people have to jump over in order to get a security clearance. But you know, there are a lot of good policy reasons why you don't want to preclude the person who's been elected president of the United States from having access to every bit of information that he needs in order to run the country and command our military forces. On the second part of your question of whether I think that Donald Trump, if he had to jump through the same hoops, would himself pass the test for security clearance, not knowing all the details, I would highly doubt it. You know, among the things that people consider in granting or denying a security clearance would include how you've handled your finances, whether you've ever declared bankruptcy, how you've treated your business partners, what your propensity and reputation for truthfulness is. And we know that Donald Trump does not have a great reputation in that regard going back a long time. 
uh, and also whether there are credible claims against you, not proven in court, not proven beyond a reasonable doubt at trial, because that's not the standard here for a security clearance, that's a privilege, but whether or not there are credible claims that you have engaged in acts that might be criminal or, or misconduct. And here we have a number of credible claims, I think, on the part of at least 18 or 19 women that Donald Trump engaged in some form of sexual misconduct. And there may be others we don't know about. The other thing about security clearances that people need to know is that the investigators go way back to the beginning of time. And when you fill out a security clearance, the SF-86 form that Jared Kushner had to resubmit time and time again, you basically have to list everywhere you've ever been, every country you've ever visited, the reasons why you did that, every job you've ever had. And any kind of malfeasance you engaged in, even decades earlier, can be a potential reason to deny you a security clearance. So again, I don't know all the details relating to Donald Trump's life, business dealings, but there's a lot out there that I think would cause the average professional career security clearance investigator to have concern. So a feature of the Trump administration has been that people keep leaving. Either they get fired or they leave of their own accord. And, and one such person who is very significant in the administration, though not so well known, is a woman by the name of Rachel Brand. Rachel Brand has been the number three person at the Justice Department. And the reason that's significant and people were sort of paying attention to her comings and goings is that because Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, is recused from the Russia investigation, the person who's in charge of it is the deputy attorney general, the number two person in the Justice Department, Rod Rosenstein. And because there's a concern that the president might fire Rod Rosenstein, who so far has been very good about making sure that Bob Mueller can do his job without impediments, if he gets fired, the next person in line who would be responsible for overseeing Special Counsel Mueller and the Russia investigation is Rachel Brand. She's leaving for a big deal opportunity in private practice in the private sector, specifically for Walmart. So Rachel Brand is leaving, and all week people kept tweeting at me things like this from Rebecca SWH, who tweeted, but why is she leaving? Well, the answer to that is, I don't know. No one can really know. But there is a lot of credible speculation, some reporting that she had told friends two things. One, she's upset and frustrated in her job at the Justice Department, that she wasn't getting a lot of support. A lot of the underlying uh, subordinate positions had not been filled, which is hard to do your job when there are a lot of vacancies. And second, and I don't know if this is true, but it seems credible given the environment, that she was concerned that Rod Rosenstein might actually be fired and she would be in the hot seat having to oversee the Russia investigation. And that puts you in a difficult position. Uh, you don't have particular job security. You don't know if the president is going to be saying terrible things about you. And that's not a great way to go about doing your professional job. And from everything that I know about Rachel Brand, she's a true professional. So we'll never know. Maybe she'll talk about it further. Maybe she'll come on the podcast at some point. Uh, but we should wish her well. My guest this week is David Cole, Georgetown law professor and now legal director of the ACLU. I think it's important that we're speaking with him this week because a lot of what's going on in the country and a lot of what people are fighting against with respect to the Trump administration is happening in court. It's complicated stuff. There's a lot of legal mumbo jumbo. But David is a great person to break down exactly what the arguments are, why he cares about them, why the ACLU cares about them, and why you should care about them. That's coming up. Stay tuned.
Hey, this is Max. I'm one of the uh, producers on Stay Tuned. And I want to tell you quickly about a podcast that we've really been enjoying around here. It's called Pod Save the People with DeRay. It's hosted by DeRay McKesson. He's an educator, an activist. Most people know DeRay from criminal justice protests, but the show is much more. Each week, he and three other black activists, Clint Smith, Samson Yangwe, and Brittany Packett, talk about the week's news through their lens. We have all learned a lot by listening to their analysis on everything from school funding to criminal justice to lead poisoning. Then DeRay interviews one or two people next on the show. Uh, they've had Vinita Gupta on, who's also on Stay Tuned. He's talked to everyone from John Legend to Katy Perry, Tracy Ellis Ross, Chelsea Handler, uh, Senators Gillibrand and Booker, also Reza Eslan. It's a rich discussion about hope, activism, and personal stories, and it really gives you a uh, whole new lens on the world. So check it out. Let us know what you think. Professor David Cole, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Are you still a professor? Well, sort of. I, I, I'm on leave from Georgetown. So, but I can I'm, still call you professor. Uh, you, know, you can call me whatever. Or should I call you executive director? <laughs> I'm the legal director. The of legal the director for the yep. ACLU. We yep. are going to talk about the ACLU a bit. Why did you make the switch from comfortable tenured spot yeah. at the great law school at Georgetown to going to work for this organization where you have to do a lot of real work. Well, I've always been a professor who practices. I've, uh, I started out as a public interest lawyer working at the Center for Constitutional Rights here in New York City and continued to do constitutional litigation while I taught. And in the summer of 2016, the then legal director of the ACLU, a guy named Steve Shapiro, stepped down and Anthony Romero, the executive director, recruited me to the job. And he said, look, David, you've been practicing constitutional law, teaching constitutional law uh, for 30-some years under a conservative majority Supreme Court. Just think what it would be like to run the ACLU's legal program under a liberal Supreme Court. And of course, that was the summer of 2016. Everybody knew Hillary Clinton would win the election. Uh, she would get to replace uh, Anthony Scalia's uh, seat. And for the first time in about 40 years, uh, we'd have a liberal majority Supreme Court. And so I thought, fantastic, signed on the bottom line, didn't put in a little conditional clause saying, what if? Uh, because, of course, at that time, nobody thought there was any other possible result. The job changed in November. I'm a little confused, though, about what it means to be liberal versus conservative and what that means with respect to what you understand the mission of the ACLU to mean. Yeah. Because on certain issues, I think, what people think of as the divide between liberals and conservatives on some things having to do with liberty, particularly the First Amendment, it's not so easy to predict whether an otherwise conservative or otherwise liberal person will be in favor of the ACLU's position or not, right? No, that's absolutely true. And, and, and you pick the right around which there is the most sort of mixing and matching of uh, conservatives and liberals. That is the First Amendment. Many conservative justices... Justice Scalia was a very strong First Amendment justice. Justice Kennedy's uh, very strong on the First Amendment. Chief Justice Roberts is in the majority on a lot of First Amendment opinions. Many liberals, if you ask them what's, their, what's the worst decision the Supreme Court has handed down in the last you know, 20 years, it's Citizens United, a First Amendment decision. Right. So, we're going to talk about that yeah, one too. So, so it's not that we're always on the liberal side by any means. We are on the side of uh, protecting rights and liberties, but we have a robust program to advance racial justice, to advance LGBT rights, to advance women's rights. And on those issues, 
uh, the conservative justices tend to be not so likely to be on our side. Voting rights uh, as well. So what happens when things come into conflict? And the reason I ask is there have been over time occasions where people who are proud members of the ACLU funding it or being on the board have gotten upset about a position the ACLU has taken. I think most famously many years ago, the ACLU took a position on whether or not the Nazis could march in Skokie, Illinois. And I, I believe it's the case some people turned their backs on the ACLU who had been supporters before that. And we lost uh, hundred, several hundred thousand supporters and members. Right, and obviously that was long before your time. How does how does a decision get made about what the ACLU's position should be when you have a disparate membership and you have these tensions among people who are members? Well, we have a, a board. We're, we're actually a democratic organization. We have a you are? Yeah. We have 53 affiliates. We're a federalist democratic organization. We have 53 affiliates, one national office. There's a board of 75 people, uh, one representative from each of the affiliates. They're in all the states. California happens to have three. And they set our policy, broadly speaking. And so, for again, the ACLU was founded in 1920, and this has been the way it's been since 1920. The board has set our policies at the broadest level. But that doesn't necessarily resolve disputes. So, for example, one of the major disputes that the ACLU has dealt with over the years is the role of money in campaigns. And uh, and the ACLU's board has taken the position that when the government regulates how much money people can spend on elections, that's a First Amendment issue uh, and that it should only be uh, upheld where uh, it serves a compelling interest of fighting corruption and the like. It's essentially where the Supreme Court is, um, is where the ACLU board has been. I, you know, I had Floyd Abrams, noted First Amendment scholar advocate on the show recently, and we talked about, you know, some of the, the cases he worked on, which will be familiar to you, and the ACLU has, you know, had a stake in some of those. Yeah. And we talked about Citizens United, where he was one of the lawyers actually at the Supreme Court. Yeah. And he said he got more grief and uh, attack from his quote-unquote liberal friends based on that representation than he did when he represented people who he thought had the right to engage in hate speech. Yeah. And Citizens United, why don't you take a second and just describe in 30 seconds what that case means. So um, Citizens United was essentially a challenge by a nonprofit corporation to a law that restricted its ability to spend money to engage in electioneering to basically advocate against Hillary Clinton by issuing a documentary that was a very long ad attacking Hillary Clinton. And the contention was that the First Amendment protects their right to publish and distribute this documentary. They weren't contributing money to a con to a candidate. They were engaging in expenditures. They were spending their own money to express their own view. And the fact that they were a corporation, uh, they argued, uh, should not preclude their being protected by uh, the First Amendment. The First Amendment, they argued, doesn't protect just people. It also protects businesses. And most of the people who are upset about this, I'm not sure that they're upset at what they perceive to be an incorrect analysis of what speech is. They're upset about a perceived harm from allowing uh, unregulated amounts of money to be spent on this kind of speech because, I suspect, right, that they think, yes, sure, what you said is true. The New York Times is a corporation. The Koch brothers have corporations. But they worry that 
some kinds of corporations where there's a lot of money are run by wealthy people and that perspective will have more leverage and more power in an already imbalanced democracy. So you're getting to, I think, what the key question really is, is when is it legitimate for the government to regulate how much people can spend on campaigns, um, notwithstanding that it's protected by the First Amendment? And what the Supreme Court has said is that there's one and only one legitimate reason for doing that, and that is to avoid corruption, bribery, as they, which they define as bribery, or the appearance of bribery. I think that's – personally, I think that's too narrow a, a construction. I think the system is corrupt when politicians have incentives to pay much greater attention to some of their constituents than others because some of their constituents can raise millions of dollars for them and others of their constituents can only give them one vote. You know that That's a corrupt system in my view. And so I think that equalizing interest should be understood to be a legitimate – interest that justifies regulation of campaign finance. The ACLU isn't there. The ACLU's official policy, and on this I disagree with them, but, uh, but the ACLU's official policy is you have to have very tightly defined compelling interests to justify the regulation of speech. Equalization is much harder to define and much murkier. Uh, and so at this point, the board is not comfortable with that kind of a broad uh, justification. How's Justice Neil Gorsuch on the issues that you and the ACLU care about? I think that remains to be seen. You know, he's only uh, issued about 13 decisions. Uh, and, What's your sense so far? Well, I mean, his first term on the court, where he showed a political stripe, it was not one that was very favorable to uh, civil liberties or civil rights. But he, hasn't, he didn't really have a tremendous opportunity to weigh in this term. Because the court didn't have that many cases last term that were particularly blockbuster cases. This term, by contrast, there's just a, a host of blockbuster cases, many of which we're right. counseling. I want to talk and, about this. And we will see. So I think you know, this will be the first sign of, uh, of where he really is. Okay, which blockbuster case that you are involved with do you want to talk about first? Uh, well, we could talk about Carpenter. Okay. So Carpenter is uh, our case in which we are challenging – we're essentially arguing that the Fourth Amendment needs to be brought into the 21st century. It involves whether the government can get access to citizens' cell phone location data without a warrant, without probable cause. And the argument that the government makes is, well, when you walk around with your cell phone, it's connecting up to cell towers all the time in order to work. And the cell phone companies keep records of those connections. And so they know where you are 24-7. And they have a record of where you've walked 24-7 for the last year or what have you. And so the government should be able to get that information from the cell phone company without probable cause or without a warrant because it's not a search. They're just serving a subpoena on a third party on, on the phone company and you've already given up your privacy and that information by sharing that information with the phone company. That doctrine is based on analog era precedents. Yeah. So I was going to say, because that, you know, that's an issue that I'm sure you've dealt I, with many, dealt many a with. time. Look, I was a prosecutor for a long time. The animating principle for a lot of prosecutors was under the Fourth Amendment, given how many exceptions there are and given what you had to show in light of evolving technology 
and the necessity to find out bad things that were happening often in real time, you know, less of an issue in historical cases, and where the law was not clear, I think, you know, prosecutors would reasonably make the argument, we don't have to waste additional time and make additional showings, which we might not be able to make, in order to find out who kidnapped the child or some other, you know, prosecutors always would talk about the worst case scenarios, right? Because we're not stupid. But I've often thought that this case, this kind of case, and tell me if you agree with this, Congress is very, very lazy and not particularly savvy about technology and doesn't keep up with technology. Or is that not the problem at all? Well, Congress could do, could certainly do a better job, right? The Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which is the law that governs this, was passed in 1987 or 1997. It was passed before the iPhone existed. And prosecutors have been relying on that statute, which was passed when no one in Congress imagined that every human being on the planet and every American would be walking around with a, a geolocator in their pocket and sending out signals at every you know few uh, minute intervals uh, as to where they are. Congress has actually tried to update the... Not very hard. Uh, the, 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 well, I mean, they've got... <laughs> I used to work in the Senate. Right. I mean, but in the House, there's something like 254 co-signers. They had support in the Senate, but one you know, the leader of one House committee w- refused to let it go forward. And so you just couldn't get it put forward. I, so Congress could address it. But look, at the end of the day, if Congress doesn't act and there's a constitutional right, it's the court's obligation to protect that constitutional right. And the government came in in this case, in the Carpenter case, and it won this argument in, in the lower courts pretty consistently. It said, look, in the old days, the court ruled that if you share information with a third party, if I tell you a secret, I assume the risk that you might turn around and tell the government. Uh, I can't assert a Fourth Amendment privacy interest as between you and the government with respect to that information. And the court applied that to bank records and it applied that to phone, the numbers you dial on your phone. And the government said, look, this is the same thing. It's not the same thing, right? In our case, it showed the whereabouts of Mr. Carpenter for four months, 24-7, wherever he had his phone, uh, there was a record showing where he was. That's incredibly intimate data. That's data that before the advent of the cell phone, the government couldn't have gotten without putting 24-7 live tail on this guy for four months. They never would have done it. They probably couldn't have done it. And so the right, question but the, the ease is, of technology, so the advancement of technology, That's I still think that's, that's the key. where a lot of the conundrum yeah. is. The advancement of technology allows now government to do things more easily and quickly than they ever could before. And some things that they could never do before. Like in this case, Carpenter was suspected. This is historic data, right? So they suspected him of engaging in bank robbery or actually robbing cell phone stores, ironically. They went to the phone company and got where he had been for the last four months from the phone company. Now, if you know before the cell phone, if they wanted to know where Mr. Carpenter had been for the last four months, well, they could have asked him and he could have pleaded the fifth. They could have tried to go, you know, wildly go around and interview people who might have seen him, who might possibly remember. But Followed him nonstop. No, but they couldn't follow him because they were trying to get back information, right. historical information, right? So, so the question is, do you just allow the Fourth Amendment to shrink and shrivel 
as technology advances, or do you update the Fourth Amendment to reflect that? And I think historically the court has updated it. When wiretapping came in, the government said, well, we're not invading anybody's property, so it's not a search. The court said, yes, it is a search because people have a right to privacy in their phone communications. When the government used a thermal imaging device to try to determine whether someone was growing marijuana in their house, the court said, you're using that device to find out what's going on inside the house. We're going to protect that. We're putting um, a GPS, on, GPS on the, on, the underneath car. someone's car. Exactly. Which and the court said we're going to protect that. You so, couldn't do that before. And I think there are reasonable bases to, to take either view. And I think they're both taken in good faith. You know, law enforcement gets very excited when they can do a certain kind of surveillance. And I mean, I don't mean electronic surveillance, but surveillance of the whereabouts of a person that doesn't require paying four detectives overtime 24 hours a day, they can just stick a gadget <laughs> exactly. uh, underneath someone's car. Yeah. It's not crazy that they make the arguments that they make. And then, you know, people work out what privacy means in that context. Do you think, maybe this is an unfair question about people, do you think members of Congress who are of an older generation are up to the task of figuring out what the proper balance is if they haven't had particularly good experience or extensive experience with the technology. For example, Lindsey Graham likes to brag that he's never sent an email and he's supposed to be legislating on an update yeah. of what the Fourth Amendment means with respect to electronic communications. What do you well, make of that? Well, you, you, you hope that they rely on their staff uh, and that their staff are doing a good job. You hope that they rely on the people who brief them on these issues. Take that GPS case, you know, the case you referred to earlier, Jones. In that case, the, the, the issue was, is it a search when the government sticks a GPS on the bottom of someone's car and then uses it to monitor that car for 24-7 for a month? And the government won that case in the lower courts too, based on analog era precedents. When it got to the Supreme Court, the lawyer for the United States was up there arguing the case and Chief Justice Roberts said to him, well, if you're right that sticking this GPS on the car does not constitute a search, then that means you could search anybody, right? And the lawyer for the United States say, you know, had to say yes. And Chief Justice Roberts then said, so that means you could put a GPS on the, on the underside of the car of each of the justices on this court. <laughs> Smart <laughs> and, man, that yeah. Justice Roberts. <laughs> and, and he had to say yes. And at that moment, you knew that the case was lost. And they, indeed, they lost it nine to nothing. And the same thing happened in the Riley case, which was a case from a couple of years ago involving whether on a, when you arrest somebody, can you search the contents of their cell phone on them. You generally can search the contents of, of their backpack or their purse or their wallet. And the government said, well, yeah, this is the same thing. It's just another container. And again, they lost nine to nothing. So I think this court recognizes that the digital era requires us to think differently about privacy, that we, you know, we can't just give up privacy. We have to adjust the rules so that People are, are able to have a certain modicum of privacy in their daily lives. If all of us have to go around assuming that the government knows and can get at, without even a warrant, detailed information about everywhere we have gone for the past year, then our freedom is severely undermined. And, you know, if you trust the government, then you think, well, they're only going to do it and going after the bad guys. But think, you know, how would you feel about that government, that power in a country like Russia? Well, if you, live, if you live in a New York City street or in London, that's not America, I think you can expect that all of your comings and goings, I'm not saying this is undermined your argument necessarily, but I'm just talking about what it means, what privacy means in the modern yeah. era, not just in the area you're talking about, which is 
in private electronic communications and in travel, the fact that the government has these new modern ways of doing things means we should think about it differently. But, you know, we live in a an environment where there are cameras everywhere. And some of them have audio, most of them don't. That's how we saw, that's how the NYPD solves yeah. lots and lots of crimes. Yeah. The first thing we do when there's a murder or a shooting or an, a drug deal that we want to get to the bottom of, we pull the video. And there's almost always video of everything that's going on. That's lawful. Yep. Is it unfortunate? It's not as revealing of uh, an individual's personal life uh, as 24-7 information, right? The fact that I walked past the camera, you know, on the bank outside the corner of my office, I walk past that every day. And so that there's a record there. You know, the government can get that, but I'm walking in public. Any human being who's standing there can also see me walk. But to get that not only that I walk past that in the morning to go to work, but where I go when I leave work, who is going with me to wherever I go, who I have dinner with, you know, whose house I sleep at, uh, which offices I visit during the day, whether they be a psychiatrist or a doctor or what have you, that's the kind of information you can get with this location data information. And that's much more difficult to get with the camera. The camera gives you a one-shot image of Everybody who has been in a particular place. But if you have enough cameras, you, yeah, get, you, you have, get a very and, good picture. And they're, all, <laughs> right, and they're right. all linked. But that's the other thing. They're not generally all linked. So, you know, yeah, if you could link them, then you could create a similar kind of Steven Spielberg God's you know, eye view. situation. Uh, yeah. Right. Let's move past the Fourth Amendment and talk about cake. You were personally involved in one of the cases that a lot of people focused on. Fascinating issue. Tell us about the cake case. Right. So this is Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. It involves a bakery in Denver, Colorado that refused to sell a wedding cake to a gay couple because they were gay and were seeking to uh, use it for their, uh, their gay wedding. And under Colorado public accommodations law, just as under public accommodations law of virtually every state in the, in the union, when a business opens itself to the public, it is barred from discriminating among its customers based on certain protected characteristics. And in Colorado, that includes sexual orientation. So they brought their complaint to the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. It found that there was indeed a violation of the statute. Seems uh, like an open and shut case. It seems like it. And, and, so and, what went wrong? And so what, what the baker says is, well, wait a minute. I'm not just any business. I am a creative, artistic, expressive business, and therefore I have a First Amendment right not to be compelled to bake and sell a cake to a couple for an event that I find offensive, number one. And number two, I have a religious freedom right because I'm Christian. And my religion tells me that you can't have uh, a same-sex uh, marriage. It's against God's teachings, and, and I can't be compelled to do something that is contrary to my religion. So it set up so, a real conflict between, on the one hand, equality norms and the notion that businesses, once they choose to be open to the public, have to operate and not discriminate, and uh, speech and religion uh, claims on the on the other side. So the ACLU came down on the side of the speech, right? Right. No, wrong. Oh, <laughs> I'm so confused, Professor. <laughs> well, see, we're a multi-issue organization. Could you explain we, that to we, me? Could we, you explain it to the listeners? We came down on the side of equality. Uh, we came down on the side of equality because we think when the government targets speech 
or targets religion, the court has to uh, intervene and the government can only do what it's doing if it has a compelling interest and it does it in a narrowly tailored way. When the government regulates generally without regard to speech, without regard to religion, the fact that a particular individual who happens to be covered by the law can characterize his business as speech shouldn't give him an out from civil rights laws. And that's actually been established for a very long time in the early, the early days of these laws in the 1960s and 1970s. Many businesses claimed that they had a religious-based objection to integration or that they had a First Amendment opposition to integration and therefore they could not be required to serve black uh, people in restaurants. Uh, Bob Jones University said we can't be required to admit students who have interracial marriages because it's, a, it's a, a opposed to our uh, religion. And in those cases, what the court said was, no, the law here doesn't single you out because of your religion. It doesn't single you out because of your speech. It treats you like it treats every other restaurant, like it treats every other university, like it treats every other business open to the public. And when the law does that, you don't have to satisfy the kind of stringent scrutiny that is required where the government singles out speech. And I think that I think that's the right analysis. I mean, otherwise, any time a business can be characterized as expressive, they could have a sign up in their window saying wedding cakes for straight people only. Or a photography studio could say, we take uh, photographs of of men only. Or Muslims uh, need not come to this barber shop for a haircut. Uh, because Haircutting is expressive. I use artistic uh, and expressive uh, uh, skills in fashioning every haircut, and I'm opposed to Muslims, and so I shouldn't have to try to uh, support them through my art. So, you know, and I, and I think I don't think the court's going to accept that kind of broad exemption because what it requires is the— Because the cake is edible? Well, no, no, not because the cake is edible, because it requires the government and the court ultimately to draw a line between which businesses are sufficiently expressive to have an exemption from equal protection law. So in the argument, you know, she was saying, the, the lawyer for the baker was saying, well, you know, this cake is very expressive. And so Justice Kagan said, well, what about a, a makeup artist? She said, oh, no, no, a makeup artist, that wouldn't be uh, protected. And Justice Kagan said, well, what do you mean? They're called artists. How can you <laughs> and Justice Alito said, well, what about an architect? And she said, oh, no, no, no. An architect wouldn't be protected. And Justice Breyer said, so you mean Mies van der Rohe is not expressive, but your client is? I mean, there's just no principled way to draw the distinction. When the uh, lawyer for the United States, which supported the exemption in this case, the first time in history that a, the United States government has supported an exemption from a civil rights law on, on First Amendment grounds, and that was a Trump decision, Trump administration decision, he argued the reason you knew the cake was protected by the First Amendment was that it was a highly sculpted cake and it cost a lot of money. How much money so, did it cost? Yeah, you know, a lot of money. It wasn't a cake that you bought, you know, behind the counter at Safeway. The whale, the Carvel, yeah, I mean, the Carvel crazy, ice cream. Crazy, cake. crazy. So, you know, that's just, there's no principled way to draw that line. Whereas the position we were taking, I think, is very principled. It says when the government is singling out speech or singling out religion, then you got to be very skeptical and the court should step in. But when the government is regulating across the board, it says you can't discriminate in your business, if you choose to open your business public, you can't discriminate whether you are selling hammers or books. 
It doesn't matter whether it's expressive or not. We don't want businesses open to the public refusing to treat people as if they're not members of the public. On this issue, was there any debate within the ACLU on what position you would take? There was debate on this issue in the sort of broad sense when these cases first arose. These sometimes we call them religious refusals. When conservatives started to lose the battle over marriage equality, they shifted their tactics and they started uh, asserting these kind of First Amendment and religious freedom-based arguments to not have to support same-sex marriage uh, by providing services to them in the in, you know in the course of business. And at that point, we you know we sat down, we put together a committee, we we talked it through, we uh, looked at what we thought the right answer to this was as a principled matter, and we concluded um, that where the government is regulating generically, not targeting speech or religion, it's not a First Amendment problem. Can I ask you a personal question? Well, not a personal question. It's a practice question. I don't know that people appreciate what it means to argue in the Supreme Court. How many times have you argued there? This was my fifth. Fifth time. And how long were you given by the court to speak? Uh, well, originally I was given 15 minutes. I, I ended up getting about 20, 20, 20 22 minutes. So your expectation is 15 minutes. Yeah. Tell the folks who are listening how many hours you prepare alone and with your colleagues for a 15-minute session in front of nine justices? Probably two weeks of nonstop preparation. Some, you know, preparation. You, you, first of all, you write the brief. So you've thought through the issue. You wrote or you had people write it for you? No. I, well, <laughs> I you don't have to say worked that. Very, okay, I worked I'm very closely on, heavy the, on these briefs with a team, with a team of, to be sure. And I had a fantastic team in this case. But then uh, I did five practice arguments. This is the most uh, we call moot courts, the most moot courts I've ever done for a case. I did five. Uh, and each one was uh, incredibly helpful in sharpening the kinds of uh, answers I gave, in you know raising up questions that maybe I hadn't thought about. In fact, in the very last moot that I did, the fifth moot, I got a question, the very end of the very last moot, that I hadn't thought about. I really didn't know how to answer it. And I tried to bluff my way through, but, you know, couldn't. <laughs> and uh, afterwards, I talked with my team and, and one, one member of my team said, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a question. Uh, Justice Alito asked that question in this other case, you know, three years ago. And, and, and here's how I would answer it. And sure enough, that question came up in the argument. From, so, Justice, from Justice Alito. From Justice Alito. So, it's good so, to have a team. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You practice – because you have such such a short amount of time – and you want to get across your points, you and you don't get to make a speech. You know, you are answering questions for the entire time that you're up there. In my 20 minutes, I probably got you know 40 questions or something like that. So you, so you, how have, many from how many from Clarence Thomas? <laughs> you know the answer to that. None. None. Uh, but pretty much everybody else, uh, very very actively engaged on this panel. You need to both have thought about every question you uh, might get and be sort of cognizant of how you make an affirmative argument in a defensive posture by answering questions. Because, you know, if you're making a speech, you can say, well, this is my first point, and here's my second point, and here's my third you're point. You can't do that. Yeah. What's going to happen to the travel ban? The travel ban? You know, what should happen to the travel ban is it gets struck down. I mean, it is three iterations of the travel ban have been struck down. We at the ACLU filed the very first case. It was We filed it the night that the uh, travel ban was put into place. We filed it here in Brooklyn, uh, and we got an order the very next day. And you know, ever since, every court that has looked at this has found that the ban is number one, 
designed to do what President Trump promised, which is to ban Muslims from entering the country by using countries that are majority Muslim. Uh, and number two, that it violates the immigration statute because the immigration statute as of uh, the 1960s uh, was amended to prohibit nationality-based discrimination in immigration. And President Trump has just run roughshod over both the Constitution and the statute. So it should get struck down. That said, any time a case goes to the Supreme Court involving immigrants and national security, it's a tough case for those who are challenging the president's actions. So I think it's a bogus national security claim. I think it's a bogus immigration claim. And I think it's a really offensive under the Establishment Clause. So I hope the court will agree, but it's, it'll be a tough case. Have you enjoyed your time at the ACLU? I've loved it. You're, You're having gonna, a moment. The ACLU yeah. is having something well, of a yeah. moment. I, I say to people, you know, before I started working at the, I started in January of last year. Before I started working at the ACLU, we had 400,000 members. Today, we have 1.75 million members. Now, that's the difference between causation and correlation. I don't think I don't think I can <laughs> don't take, use that argument in yeah, court. I, I don't think I can take credit for many of those new members. My dad joined, so that's one. Right. But Donald Trump can take credit for it. But that's a tremendous source of power, and I think a tremendous source of hope that so many people have stood up. And it's not just by joining the ACLU; it's by coming out and marching in the Women's March. It's by going out to the airports to oppose the Muslim ban. It's by going to town halls to oppose the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it's by going to the polls uh, in Virginia and, and Alabama uh, uh, to vote out uh, Republican candidates and, and rebuke President Trump. I find President Trump to be one of the most terrifying uh, figures in American history. But I find tremendous hope in the extent to which I've seen the American public uh, stand up get involved, get engaged, and fight back for what this country stands for at its best. And for better or for worse, we're in the middle of that uh, because we've been around for 100 years fighting this fight. It's just that now we have 1.75 million people helping us. Do you consider yourself to be part of the resistance, as they say? So, you know, yes and no. I think, you know, we are nonpartisan. We're not part of a resistance because we're anti-Republican, but we but you're anti-Trump. We're, we, we are anti-Trump because of the particular threats that he has posed to uh, civil liberties and uh, equality across the board. It's, it's not because he's a Republican. It's because of what he has done, what he has promised to do. He has gone after all of the things that we have been fighting for for so long in this country. And so we are resisting him, uh, but ultimately what we're doing is defending liberty. Say something nice about prosecutors. <laughs> so prosecutors, uh, you know, I, I think um, number one, I'd say a couple things about prosecutors. One, prosecutors are tremendously powerful actors in this country, more powerful actors, I think, than many people have previously understood. And, they are. And so when a prosecutor exercises his or her discretion in a fair way, I think they can do tremendous amount of good. Sometimes prosecutors are the problem, but I also think prosecutors are the solution. I'll take that. David Cole, thank you again for being my guest Thanks, today. Preet. This is the point in the show where I talk about something that happened in the news that struck me. And at the risk of this turning into sort of what Preet did the prior weekend, let me just tell you what I did last weekend in commemoration of 
the birthday of one of our greatest presidents, some would say the greatest president, Abraham Lincoln. Last Saturday, I got an invitation to appear on stage with the Knickerbocker Chamber Orchestra, conducted very ably by Gary Fagan, for their performance of a number of pieces, but in particular, a piece by the noted composer Aaron Copeland called Lincoln Portrait. And it was a free concert for anybody who wanted to come, and a lot of people showed up, at a beautiful venue, the Winter Garden, in Lower Manhattan. And if you're not familiar with it, Aaron Copeland's Lincoln Portrait was composed, I think, in 1942, at a time when people were really concerned about what was going on in the world and whether the forces of darkness were going to overcome the forces of good. And it was a hopeful piece that contains in it a role for a narrator to read some of the most inspiring words ever written and spoken by Abraham Lincoln. So it was kind of a tall order, no pun intended, and I was asked to be the narrator. And I got to be on stage with this amazing orchestra conducted by Gary Fagan and say things like this. Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. He said also, The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we will save our country. Think of how dark a time it was in 1942. People didn't know who was going to prevail, the Allies or the Axis powers. People were dying in the military. Civilians were dying in various places. And there was an artist who was able to compose a beautiful, uplifting, hopeful piece of music that, most inspiringly of all, was drawn from and came from our own great American history in the form of the words and teachings of Abraham Lincoln. That's a pretty inspiring combination. And Saturday was a pretty inspiring evening. So once again, let me just thank Gary Fagan and the Knickerbocker Chamber Orchestra for putting it together and doing such a great job. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, David Cole, and thank you for listening. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or now there's even an email address you can use. Stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.